That's a great song, Matt, wherever you are. 1821, who wrote it? James Montgomery. James Montgomery. Seems like there should be a last name, another name with that, doesn't there? <laughs> James Montgomery. That's a good song for us today, and I'm glad uh, that Matt introduced that. Uh, there's a lot of really rich lyrics in there that will help us as we engage here this morning. We are studying the book of Acts. I would encourage you to turn there. Acts 13, the passage that Jeff read for us. As you're turning there, I want to just offer some thank yous to everybody here on a variety of different things. Uh, first, just some, some personal thank yous. Uh, you know, October is uh, Pastor Appreciation Month, and there have been anonymous gift givers that have brought some gifts to the church all month long, from food to Rice Krispie treats to, notice I didn't put that in the food category, to uh, dinner for our families, to gift cards for, uh, our, you know, for both uh, Sarah and Heather. And, um, and then this week, the uh, anonymous gift givers uh, brought Nerf guns for Jeff and I to shoot each other with in the office to let out any anxiety we might have. So uh, we just appreciate that, and, and I appreciate this week the, the Christmas... Christmas, oh my word. <laughs> Boy, I'm already thinking Christmas. Birthday uh, presents that came in this week, and also prayers for our family as Alyssa uh, had her appendix out this week, and she's still out, having a hard time sitting up, and uh, so stomach still hurts. And, uh, and Heather's had this respiratory flu for two weeks, and so there's just been a lot of things going on. I almost began this announcement this morning by saying, yeah, Heather got up this morning and wasn't feeling good, and then I realized that would sound like an announcement. <laughs> you know? So I thought, well, we'll change it to, she's had the respiratory flu and, uh, for a couple of weeks, and so lots of things going on, but we just appreciate all your support and, uh, and love and, and all that you've given and it's been amazing. I also want to just say what a great week, too, for those that helped out with Network of Nations. I saw the, uh, Julie Jesper sent out an email update with some pictures, and it's just so encouraging to see families come out and serve in that ministry. And then on Saturday, the big crew of you that came out to help do the mailing for the Karises up in Canada and their fundraising mailing. So uh, what an amazing support you guys have been, and it's so blessed, it blessed my heart to see that and and to uh, know that you guys are just uh, given of your time and your energy to uh, serve others. And it's just been personally encouraging on, on many fronts. So I want to thank you all for that. So uh, we are going to uh, now get ready here and study Acts 13. But in order to do that, why don't you just join me in prayer. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for a glorious day. Thank you, God, for this great song that we just sung about the one that you brought through the line of David and how we're going to study this this morning and how central this is. And God, thank you for uh, being able to gather together on this fall day and the Christmas of the air and, and uh, the, the colors of the trees changing and to see the beauty around us. And thank you for uh, this church body that has gathered in, in, in love and support of, of others and have modeled the gospel uh, Lord, thank you for that, and thank you that we in community now can be under your word and join together to, to uh, be enriched and grow and, and, and be conformed to the image of Christ. Thank you, God, for this privilege of being together. In Christ's name, amen. I have a question for you. If 
question is this. As you think about reading the Bible, like if I tell you, okay, I'm going to put you off in a cabin somewhere for one 24-hour period, all you have is a Bible, that's it, and you're just going to read that Bible all day, what would be difficult about reading the Bible? What are, what are the challenges that come your way if you thought, well, I'm going to read the Bible all day? What are the challenges that come to your mind? For a lot of people, and it's difficult sometimes as a Christian to admit it, there can be challenges in reading your Bible. There can be. There can be challenges. There, there, are, there are situations that come up that you say, boy, you know, I'm either not understanding this or I don't get it. It seems hard. You know, a novel seems easier to read than this. And so this can become difficult sometimes. And, and, it's, and it's not bad to admit that struggle. And, uh, and, and if we were sitting here kind of in a more dialogue format, and if I had a whiteboard behind me, we would probably say, okay, let's just throw out things that are a struggle in studying the Bible. I bet you that for a large portion of the room, one of the struggles that comes in reading the Bible is the fact in, in, that we don't often understand the relationship between some of the things we see in the Old Testament and some of the things we see in the New Testament. You read these Old Testament stories, and then you wonder, what in the world does this have to do with this over here in the New Testament? Why are there all, you know, why is numbers numbers, you know? Like, why is all this counting going on? Why is so much time spent on the details of the temple? And I can't even measure in cubics. I don't even know what this means. Why is this hard? Right? And, and there are many people that would say, yeah, that, that's a struggle. And, and, and it's hard sometimes to reconcile what you read in the Old Testament with what you read in the New Testament. It's hard sometimes to put those two things together. And then if you decide, I'm going to really jump into it and maybe buy some books to help me understand this, you'll discover there's like a million different positions out there of how you understand the Old Testament versus the New Testament. And that sometimes becomes more confusing. And so then it's easier just to kind of flip through and read until something sticks. Right? You just kind of thumb through and, uh, oh, that's an interesting thought. And, And then you just kind of land there. Well, for many, that's a struggle. I know that was a struggle for me in my life. I remember when I first started pouring in and studying the Scriptures, kind of going, I don't understand how all this works, how all these books all harmonize together. And, uh, and I needed help in that process. Well, if that's true for you, uh, I'm excited that we get to study this passage today because we're going to get expert advice on how to understand all of this all in one. Because we're going to have the Apostle Paul teach us. And what he's going to do is we get to hear a sermon by Paul, or read a sermon by Paul, where Paul is going to put together the whole Bible for us. He's going to put it all together. The teaching of the Old Testament with the message that the Apostles proclaim that becomes the teaching of the New Testament. He's going to package it all together. Paul's out on this missionary journey, been invited to preach in a synagogue, The Old Testament has been read. Something out of the first five books was read. Something out of the prophetic books was read. And then he was invited to comment on it. And so now he's going to do this. He's going to comment. And in this commenting, what he's going to do is he's going to put together and explain to us all of redemptive history. How everything fits together. And he's actually going to teach us from Genesis all the way to the book of 2 Samuel. In his sermon. And then he's going to connect Genesis to 2 Samuel to Jesus. 
And he's going to put it all together for us. And I will tell us, tell you, that this is important for us to learn for two reasons. One, if we could really comprehend Paul's sermon here, I think the Bible will suddenly click together for us. But secondly, then, this becomes helpful because most of the time when we engage people in the world, the issue that people have is usually with the Bible. Two weeks ago, I was speaking to a man who was a bit antagonistic towards the Bible, and, and he said to me, Steve, I, have, I cannot see how you can, can with integrity say that the Bible has any authority when the Bible contradicts itself. Right? You've probably heard something like that. And then he proceeded to show me where he thought the Bible contradicted itself. And he thought he had the evidence right here. Boom, here it is. And I said, well, do you believe something should be taken in context? Yes, okay, well, let's look at it in context. And we begin to explain it, how it all fits together. Now, you get, you'll be faced with those questions too, and sometimes you look and go, boy, that looks like it contradicts itself. Unless you understand how the Bible fits together. When you see how it fits together, that's what empowers us to be able to be bold and to proclaim. And, and what I'm hoping that happens today is you'll get kind of an aha moment as we study Paul's sermon. And when you get that aha moment, I'm praying that all of a sudden you'll see how this thing clicks. And not only will it help you with your own Bible reading, but I also believe that it will help you when you're faced with that skeptic who's challenging you. And I'll have more to say about that at the end. So here's what we're going to do. You see in your bulletin, it's like power-packed with words, right? There's not a lot of space to take notes. My, my chose today to give you a more structured outline because as Jeff was reading this, you probably figured out this is a power-packed sermon. There's a lot of stuff in this sermon. And so what I did was try to organize it in a way that we have our sermons organized. So I kind of just took it and 21st centurized it. You know, just ran it through the grid and said, okay, here's how I would outline Paul's sermon. I did him a favor and I alliterated it, okay? Which I'm sure when I go to heaven, Paul will say, thank you, Steve, for giving all those P's in there. That was very helpful, right? Okay, but I did this to try to give you the structure of the sermon. And as you see the structure, I want it to be a resource for you so you can go back and study the sermon. Because if you really understand Paul's sermon... I believe the whole Bible will suddenly start clicking for you. Okay, so we got a lot to cover. So let's jump into it. First thing we're going to do is we're just going to look at the setting of the sermon really quickly, and then we'll jump into the sermon itself. So just look at verse 13 with me. Luke records, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. That's a lot of peas there, isn't it? And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Okay, so here's what you've got. A couple observations to make. First, I want you to notice that we are no longer seeing Paul and Barnabas. Now we've got Paul and his companions. He's starting to emerge as the leader of this group. And suddenly it's just going to be Paul, right? So it kind of goes from Paul and Barnabas to now just Paul. And, uh, and then you notice that John leaves. John Mark takes off. We don't know a lot of details yet. Luke kind of gradually unfolds them. But what we will learn is that there was some form of conflict. Some issue that came up that made John feel like he couldn't do it anymore. And later, it's going to cause a rift between Paul and Barnabas. But again, we'll, just let, we'll take Luke's pace on telling us this story just to let us know that they left, that he left. Okay, so now this whole kind of mission team is changing. There's some maybe conflict emerging, but that's okay. Conflict emerges everywhere, and even on Paul's team it did. John takes off. 
And now we've got Paul and Barnabas. Now look at verse 14. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. This is not the same Antioch they were sent from. They have now moved from basically, like you would say, northern Israel up in the northern part up there. And they went to an island out in the Mediterranean. And then they went north. And now they're in southern Turkey. So in your brain, just think of Turkey. They're in the southern part of Turkey. That's where they are now. Okay? And so they went to Antioch, Pisidia, which was a city in southern Turkey. And on the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Okay, so here's our setting. Paul goes to the synagogue because he knows there's Jews there and Gentiles who are seeking the Lord. And he's going to address both of them when he preaches. And he comes there, and because he's a Pharisee, he gets the opportunity to preach anytime. In that day, the way that it worked is that the people would stand in the synagogues. They would stand. The, the rabbis would come in. They would put the law down on a table, and then they would sit down, and everyone would stay standing. And they would read. If there was a guest rabbi in the room, he was called on to preach. Paul would take advantage of this because he was a Pharisee, one of the leaders. And so he would walk in and people go, hey, Paul, you're welcome to come here anytime. And so he's in the standing among the people. The rabbi reads and then he says, Paul, Barnabas, would you like to come up and say anything? And Paul says, yeah, I'm ready to roll. Now Paul has a mission. Here's his mission. His mission is he's got to take this reading from the Old Testament that they just had, and he's got to show them that Jesus is the fulfillment of what they just read. Think about that task. That's your task. You're in a Jewish synagogue. They read the Old Testament. You've got to now draw a line from that passage to Jesus. That's what this sermon is doing. What he's doing is he's showing people how Jesus fulfilled what they had just read. And I would tell you this, that ultimately is always the act of evangelism. At the very end, I'll show you how, what I mean by that. But the act of evangelism, as I always see it, is I'm always trying to engage somebody where they're at in their life and taking them from where they're at to Jesus. How Jesus is the fulfillment. If I'm dealing with somebody who's, you know, greedy, and, 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 you know, living for the dollar and working for the dollar. I want to show them, hey, man, you're seeking for something in that money. But guess what? That money can't give you anything. It can't give you anything. Why? Because God didn't design us to live for money. He designed us to live for him. How do you live for him? Let me show you Jesus. You see, we take it where you're at to Jesus. Here's the, this is what Paul does now. So he's got the law being read. Probably something from Genesis, probably something from one of the, the prophet, prophetic books. Given Paul's sermon, probably read something from Genesis and probably something from Samuel. And now Paul's going to draw this line. And here's what he does. I'll give you a general structure. You see it there in your bulletin. The general structure is this. Paul sees the Old Testament. We'll call it the Old Testament. He didn't call it that. Paul sees the, the 39 books of the Old Testament as promise. God making a promise. God revealing himself, and in the revelation of himself, revealing what he's going to do for humanity. 
That's how he sees it. And so when Paul reads the Old Testament, he sees God revealing his character, his nature, and in that, his plan for redemption. And then Jesus, then, is the fulfillment of that. Here's the promise in the Old Testament. Here's the fulfillment, as we would say, in the New Testament. When you're reading your Old Testament, you're reading God promising to do things. God saying, this is what's happening. Here's the state of humanity. Here's what I'm going to do. What are you reading in the New Testament? How Jesus then fulfilled all of that. Promise fulfillment. So there's your structure of Paul's sermon. Point one of his sermon is promise. Point two of his sermon is fulfillment. And then there's two more points after that. There's, a, there's then an announcement that he's going to make. He's going to say, all right, since Jesus is the fulfillment of this, here's the truth. And then there's a conclusion where he gives a warning. If you don't follow this truth, it's bad news. So there's his outline. And then I've subdivided that outline a little bit further. But let's jump into it because we've got a lot to cover in this sermon here. And I wanted to cover it all today so we're not breaking it up. You can see the flow of it. Okay, so let's look at the sermon. The first point of Paul's sermon is the promise. And what Paul does is he focuses on five aspects of God's nature. And, in these, and as he reveals these five aspects of God's nature in the sermon, he's also then revealing all of the things that God is going to do for humanity when the Messiah comes. This is important to catch because at the end of, this, end of my sermon today, I'm going to show you how this will help you not only read your Bible, but also share Jesus in very uncomfortable situations. Okay, so very important. All right, so let's look, at, let's look at these five things that he reveals. And those are all listed there in your bulletin. And I gave them all P's just to make it a real sermon. Okay, so here we go. The first one, the provision of God. Look at what Paul says in verse 16 and 17. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. So the first thing he's doing is he's standing up. Notice he's addressing both the Jews and the Gentiles. Men of Israel, those are Jews. You who fear God, those are Gentiles. God-fearers, people who weren't Jews, but they wanted to know about God. So he says, now listen, both Jews and Gentiles, let me tell you, and what he does is he takes basically the first two books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus, and sums it up with three points. He says, God chose Abraham to become, through him, to, to form our nation. God made our people strong. He made our people strong. And he led us out of Egypt with his mighty right hand. You know what God does, man? God is the one who provided our whole nature, our whole nation. He's the one who made us strong. He's the one who saved us. He's the one who took us out of slavery. God is our provider. He's given us everything. We we wouldn't exist without God giving this to us. God is our provider. There's the first point of his sermon. Okay? As he's trying to put the Old Testament together. Okay. So now, then he moves to the second character trait of God as he's moving on in the history of Israel. Not only is he a provider, but he's patient. Look at verse 18. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. Now they know what he meant. After he had delivered them out of Egypt, what happened? They went in the wilderness and they just complained. 
They were just upset about everything. Did you bring us out here to die? We have no water. We don't like the food. We're eating the same food all the time. Egypt was so great. We had onions, and there was this great river called the Nile. We could just sit there and eat our onions by the riverside. It was so wonderful. God, you're just, oh, this is so bad. And then they, and then they said, oh, and Moses, man, you're just this horrible leader. You bring us out to this horrible place, right? They just complained and complained and complained. They didn't like God's man. They didn't like God's mission. They didn't trust in God's power. They were just ornery. And he says, you know what? For 40 years, God was patient. Now, all of this is important as you're trying to understand your Old Testament because you recognize God is a provider, right? He gives us everything. We exist because of him. But he's also patient because there may have been one time this week I complained. I'm not certain, but it's possible that I had a bad attitude somewhere this week, probably when I was sleeping. But, uh, right, I'm teasing. Right? This is the reality. God is a patient God. And he was patient with the Israelites. And then he moves on. Not only did God provide, not only is God patient, but he gave Israel a place. After all of this, he still gave them a land. Look at verse 19, 19 and 20. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Right? Paul's just working through the history of Israel. He's moving us through. Now we're in the book of Joshua. And what do we have in the book of Joshua? He's saying, now listen, here's the reality. God provided this place, and God's the one that took out the nations that were there, the enemies. They didn't do it. God did it. Why? Because God wants to give them a land. He wants them to dwell in a place that he's provided that is flowing with with wonderful gifts and and wonderful creation with milk and honey and vineyards they didn't plant and and farms they didn't have to tear up the ground for that was all ready for them. Why? Because what does God do? God's plan is to give people a place to give them a seat at the table. That's who God is. But he keeps going. Not only did he provide, and not only is he patient, not only did he give them a place, notice he gave them protectors and prophets. As we continue on there. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. See, that's the second half of verse 20 there. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. What are the judges? Well, you see, when they entered into the land, they still didn't trust God. They still sought their own way. And so they would bring all this sin into the land. They'd start worshiping all these idols, and they would bring in the Baals from the land. And and the next thing you know, their sin is starting to take over, and God isn't going to allow them to, to bear the full consequences of their own stupidity. So he sends in a prophet to wipe out the enemies, and to clean out, or sends in a protector, a judge. And what do the judges do, man? He, they just would clean out the idols and clean out all the sin and call the people back until finally he gives them a prophet, someone who would speak for God. And that prophet's role would be to anoint a king in their land. And so what has Paul done? He's run us through the book of Joshua, Judges, and now all the way into 1 Samuel with these great prophets that have come. People who protect, people who speak for God. And then, God gave the ultimate gift, the precursor. 
right? The precursor, the one who would show us the Messiah. Look at verse 21. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Okay, they wanted a king. God said, wait, I got a king for you. No, we want our king. Hey, I got a king for you. We want our king, right? It's going back and forth, right? Kind of like a little kid. No, I want it. No, right? And God says, okay, you know what? I'm going to give you a man after your heart. I'm going to give you the king you want. Here he is. Meet Saul, tall, strapping young man. And Saul, for 40 years, runs the kingdom and just does good at first and then tanks it in the end. And after 40 years, he has to get removed. And then what happens? Verse 22, And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, whom he had testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. So now, Paul is speaking to Jews and to people, Gentiles, who have studied the word. And so everyone knows that David is like the man, right? He's like the man. He's the king. And everyone's waiting for this one who will come from the line of David. So by touching on David, you're touching the very central piece here, right? He's the king. Through his line is going to come this king that we've been waiting for, this good king who would rule and reign and do all these wonderful things. And so what is David? David is the picture of the Messiah, But he's not the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. So now, what do we learn about God here? We learn that God is a provider who's patient, whose plan is to give everybody a place. He's going to protect people until that time because he has a promised one who's going to come. Okay, that's what the Old Testament teaches When you look at the Old Testament, everything about the Old Testament is about what God is going to do when the Messiah comes. All that He's going to do. All the promises, all of the promise for redemption, the promise for life, the promise for change, all of that. So when I read my Old Testament, I'm not reading something that that I can sit there and say, well, I just got to follow these five laws in the Old Testament. I'm good with God. No, what I'm reading is I'm saying, wow, God, what do you want in these five laws? Okay, I can't be that. I can't be those things that that law is asking me to be. I can't do it. I can't be pure. I can't perfectly love my wife. I can't perfectly raise my children. I can't even perfectly worship you. I need somebody to help. I need help in this. And so now comes fulfillment the second part of Paul's sermon. What Paul is going to do is he's going to now say, this promised one, this one who is going to ultimately give the ultimate provision and the ultimate place and the ultimate protection, this one is going to give us this, what we'd really been longing for, not just a patch of land in the Middle East, but an eternal kingdom, not just a provision of food on the temporal sense, but a provision of divine food, a provision of divine life. This one who will bring this is Jesus. Now here's what Paul does. Okay, Hopefully you're tracking so far. Here's what Paul does. He's going to now show Jesus as the fulfillment, and he does it two ways. First he deals, what I want to say historically, he describes Jesus as they would have understood him at that point in time. 
everything that had happened. And then he goes scripturally to show that everything that just happened in the life of Jesus actually was in the Bible. And he's going to connect the dots. So he starts historically, then moves scripturally. Okay? Paul's a very deep theologian, as you have figured out, right? Okay, so let's jump into this end of the pool here. Let's look at it historically. Verse 23. Of this man's offspring... God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So what's he saying? He's saying, now guess what, guys? You know David, that one, the ultimate one we've been waiting for? We know from his line is coming a Messiah. I'm going to tell you who it is. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the promised one. Now, if you are a Jew sitting in that room, you're going to say, prove it. Prove it. Now, what Paul has to do is he's got to prove two things. Okay? The first thing he has to prove is that all the events that were supposed to lead up to Jesus' life actually did come into play. It's the first thing he's got to prove. Meaning this, there's all these things. When, when God says the Messiah is going to come, there's going to be this guy who's supposed to come ahead of the Messiah to make, make the way straight. Well, who's that guy? Did he come? And then he's going to have to reconcile... Why did he suffer and why did he die? Right? right? I mean, the idea of putting out a king who died seems kind of strange. Right? Here's our great general. He lost every war he ever fought. That's what it appears like to them. Okay? So, so, so he's got to reconcile. Did the events take place that really do prove that Jesus is the Messiah? And then why did he die? Okay? So first thing, look at verse 24. He's got to deal with how God said the table is going to be set for the coming Messiah, verse 24. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Now they all knew of John. Because they all knew that John came, that he was this wild prophet, and that he was arrested, and he got his head cut off. Very public figure. Everyone knew John. And so he stands up and he says, guys, John was the guy. He was the guy. Isaiah 40 says someone's going to come and make the way straight for the Messiah. I'll give him a name. It's John. And just so you don't think that I'm making this up, this is what John said. John said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm the one who's making the way for the Messiah. And when he comes, I won't even be worthy enough to be his servant. He's so incredible, this one. And John was the one who said, Behold the Lamb of God when he saw Jesus. Takes away the sin of the world. Okay, So he proves there. Okay, The precursor has come. Now he's got to take this second issue. Okay, So we have the forerunner that Isaiah 40 talks about. Now the second issue. Jesus was persecuted and died. Seems like a bad king, right? Because he died. So he's going to explain this now, verse 26. You guys keeping up? This is a lot. I'm just like firing the gun at you. Okay, so hang in there. Um, I recognize this is just fast and furious. Verse 26. Brothers, Son of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, right? So now he's going to stand up and he's going to say, okay, fellow Jews and Gentiles, this is what he says. 
To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand him, or understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So he stands, so, so he now says, okay, he's the one, and John the Baptist is the forerunner. And then he kind of stands up and he says, fellow Jews and Gentiles, we as apostles have been given this message to declare to you that Jesus is the Savior. And it is true that in Jerusalem, there was Jewish leaders who rejected him. But isn't that what the scriptures said would happen? Implication, Isaiah 53, he would come to his own and his own would reject him. So when he was condemned, the scriptures were being fulfilled. That's what he's saying. This is exactly God's plan. Okay, so you see he's putting it together for him now. Verse 28, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. What's he saying? Okay, he was innocent. He was innocent. But yet, they executed him. But this is exactly what the Scripture said would happen to the Messiah. This is all he's saying. Nothing strange is happening here. If you just read your Bible, you would see that he was going to be laid up. He was going to be crushed by the Father. Implication, just read Isaiah 53. God was going to crush him. God was going to put the guilt of humanity upon him. And so here's what happened. He did exactly what the Bible said would happen. He would die, and he would be put in a tomb. Verse 30, But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. But he didn't stay in the tomb. God raised him from the dead, and I can prove it. I can bring the witnesses, all those that had been with him, the 11 disciples. I know there were 12, but you know one of them killed himself. Wasn't a good guy, right? So the 11 are still here. One more was added. You got 12 now. You got Paul, who's been engaging Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's saying, listen, he really did rise. I mean, really did see him. We had dinner with him. This this is the real deal here. And so what's his point? His point is saying this. God made all these promises in the Old Testament Jesus fulfilled all those promises. He's the fulfillment of them all. Okay? Every promise made, he's the fulfillment. Okay? Now, he needs to prove this scripturally. There was the historical proof. Okay? Scripturally, because now they're going to go, resurrection from the dead? Where is that in the Bible? That would be their natural response. So now he's got to prove it to them. Verse 32. Hopefully you're hanging in there. This is your first Sunday. We don't normally shoot at you this fast. But uh, here we go. Verse 32. And we are bringing you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he had spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. 
but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So as Paul quotes three Old Testament passages to prove the resurrection. The first one is Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. In that psalm, God is speaking to someone and saying, by the way, you're going to have my nature. Today I have begotten you. So someone is coming who's going to have my nature. And he, Paul is kind of saying, think about that for a minute. Why would God say that? Why would God say someone's going to have my nature? So we know there's a unique one, this king in Psalm 2, because Psalm 2 is about the king, the anointed king. He actually shares in the nature of God. Then the second text he quotes is Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 53, God the Father is saying that all the blessings of da- that were promised to David were going to come through this one who was going to die. So it is death that brings promise. It's death that brings blessing. That's his point. Just, just trying to show him, listen guys, this death and resurrection thing is it's not crazy. Then the third one he quotes is Psalm 1610. Psalm 1610. Very pow- powerful psalm because it says that your Holy One will not see corruption. It means that when someone's going to die, but their body's never going to decay. That's what the text means. So he says, now think about it. If that psalm was about David, well, David's skin is already off his body. He's been in the grave for a long time now. He has decayed. But Jesus didn't decay. He went into a tomb, but he came out of the tomb before his body could decay. He didn't see it. There is the the evidence of the resurrection right there. So God was going to come, and he was going to die to bring the blessings of David to the world, and then he would be raised from the dead. That's Paul's point. He says that's what Psalms and Isaiah teach us. God in the flesh coming to die to bring blessing and then to be raised from the dead There it is scripturally. Okay. There's Jesus, the fulfillment. Now, what do we do with that? Well, there's an announcement that comes. Paul's third point. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. I love that saying. Do you realize how many people turn to religion for freedom? Think about it. Think about people who are trying to please God right now, thinking, here is God, he's this judge, and I have to please him. And the only way I can please him is by strapping a bomb on my body and going and running into a mall somewhere and blowing people up. You think that's pleasing God? The law doesn't bring this kind of pleasure to God. You can't find freedom in the law. You only find destruction and death. People dipping themselves in rivers right now. People doing all kinds of ritual cleansings, thinking they're being set free. He's saying, no, it is what Jesus did that brings you free, makes you free. You think because you don't eat pork, you're holy? You're not holy because you don't eat pork. The law doesn't give you freedom. It is through the one who died for you. It is through his death that the blessings of David will come to you. It's through his death. That's what you need to know. He says, this is what I'm announcing to you. Forgiveness of sins is given to you today because Jesus died for you. He bore the wrath. 
He's not asking you. God's not asking you to kill people for him. God's not asking you to judge people for him. God's not asking you to dip yourself in a river seven times. He's not asking you not to eat pork. He's not asking you to stay away from shellfish. He's saying trust in Jesus because Jesus died to bring the blessings of David. That's what the Old Testament promised, right? That's his message. You can imagine the passion with which Paul preached that. You can imagine the passion. But then there's a conclusion to Paul's message. Let's look at the conclusion. He says, Beware, therefore, verse 40, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. He quotes from, this is Habakkuk, chapter 1. God is saying, man, I'm doing this great work. Right? I, right? Israel's in sin. I'm going to bring this horrible judgment. And you can't even imagine what's coming your way. Trust, though, that I know what I'm doing. Because if you don't trust in what I'm doing, it's going to be really bad for you. That's what Paul is saying when he quotes Habakkuk. Habakkuk's message is, if you better trust God. Because if you don't trust God, there is no life. There is no blessing. There is nothing. You cannot substitute Jesus for religion. You cannot substitute Jesus for good works. You cannot substitute Jesus because you did everything right. You can't substitute Jesus for anything. It's Jesus or death. That's what he's saying. And if you don't believe that message, there is no hope for you. That's the passage. There is his conclusion. That's quite a powerful sermon, isn't it? Okay. So what do we do with this sermon? I want to tell you something. Now, I realize I just threw this thing at you so fast that there's no way, right? I mean, I spent hours studying this this week, and then I throw it at you in 35 minutes. So I recognize you need to go back and look at this passage. And I want you to go back, and that's why I gave you the detailed outline. I want you to go back and look at it and look at the Old Testament passages that are quoted. Get a study Bible that will give you the cross-references, and you can look it up and study it. Because I want you to see how it all fits together. Because here is how we're to understand our Bible. The Old Testament gives a whole boatload of promises. A promise of forgiveness. A promise of holiness. A promise of restoration. And the New Testament says that you can only find that in Jesus. That's how it all fits together. Now let me give you an example of this in our day. Right? I've never been in a synagogue, and I've never been asked to preach in a synagogue, but, but I have been on the campus of NIU, and I have been asked this question before by students, antagonistic students. Don't you think it's pretty arrogant that you could say Jesus is the only way? I've been asked that question. Maybe you've been asked that question. Don't you think it's pretty arrogant that you could say Jesus is the only way? And my first response is, it's only arrogant if it's wrong. Okay, so now the question is, is it right? Is it right? And then I usually say something like this. Some religions in the world, they recognize the holiness of God. And they think, i got to keep this God happy or he's going to judge me. And so they do all this work and do all this work and they take all this effort to try to please the holiness of God. And they try. But we never know if they get there. There are other religions of the world that are saying God is to be pleased, He's to be worshipped. And therefore, we must constantly give these ceremonies and offerings to this God. Bring Him, bring him fruit and, 
and vegetables and, and, and go through all these ceremonies to keep worshiping him and worshiping him. And if, if we don't keep giving him gifts, he'll never bless us. And they strive for that. That's what they're looking for. Some religions of the world say the problem with the world is us. We're sinners. And therefore, what we have to do is empty ourselves of ourselves to become nothing. So eventually we'll reach some form of nirvana. And we will have been separated from the depravity of our own flesh. And we'll no longer want anything sinful in the world. And I say, you know what? The Old Testament talks, the Scriptures, the Old Testament, I'll say that for you here, the Old Testament, but the Scriptures talk that God is holy and He is a judge and He is going to judge sin. And the Scriptures talk about the fact that God is worthy to be worshipped. He's so worthy that He designed a temple that was so beautiful because this is how awesome He is and He deserves to be worshipped with every ounce of our being to every nth degree of our life He should be worshipped. And it is true that we're sinners. And that somehow I've got to be set free from the flesh, my body. So I understand some religions trying to deal with holiness, but, but they're not even dealing with worship or their own depravity. And I understand some religions trying to deal with worship, but they're not even dealing with God's holiness or their own depravity. And I understand some religions dealing with their own depravity, but they can't deal with God's holiness or worship. But what I want to tell you is that the Scriptures talk about all three of those things. And I'll say this for you here. When you read the Old Testament, that's the stuff you read about. He's holy. He wants to be worshipped. You're sinful, right? But now the question is this. How do I appease God's wrath? How do I worship Him? And how do I become cleansed from my sin? Is there anybody out there who can solve all three of those problems? Where's the answer come from? You know the answer. Jesus is the one. He pleased the wrath of God. He offered his life as worship to God. And then God accepted that and backed off his wrath and then says, now I'll give you my righteousness in exchange for your sin. And now you are pleasing to God, and now you can worship God directly without an offering anymore. It's not arrogant. It's not arrogant. I'm just telling you, I've got an answer for what you're searching for. And that answer comes when I see how the whole Bible fits together. Now, it was a long illustration at the end, and I realized that, but I wanted to tell that to you because I want you to understand that if you can look at your Bible, look at all the promises made in the Old Testament, Look at all the fulfillment of Jesus in the New Testament. It ties the Bible together, but it also gives you the message we've been left here to proclaim. Jesus fulfills it all. He fulfills it all. So I would encourage you now to go back and study the sermon. Go back and look at your Old Testament. Look at your New Testament. Begin to see promise and fulfillment. And then begin to start realizing that the quest of humanity is resolved right here. We've got an answer for everything because God has made a way for mankind to be saved. Would you bow your head with me? Maybe this morning you have never trusted in this Christ and with your kind of head bowed and just between you and the Lord and that you would say, boy, you know, I've never thought of Jesus in this way. 
Maybe this morning you're here looking at works. You're thinking, well, I'm just a good person or I'm a religious person. But I've never really thought about Jesus as being the one who appeased everything. And today would be a day to hear Paul's voice that salvation has come on Jesus. And he's brought a freedom that works of the law can never bring. And today would be a day to say, oh God, I want that freedom. Today would be a day to pray and to say, Jesus, set me free from the fear of you. Set me free from the pressure to have to worship, do things to make you happy. Set me free from the sin that entangles my body and my flesh. He died so the blessings of David could be given to us. Father, I pray now for all of us in this room I know there's so much in this Bible, in this text that we study. It's so deep and so rich, and in many ways, my inadequacies makes it even more complicated at times. But I, I pray, God, that your word would, would richly fill everyone and, and that it would push us to want to study this more, push us to want to understand how these two things fit together, push us not only for our own freedom's sake, but for the sake of being able to to feel the boldness to stand in a room and to be able to explain to people how Jesus fulfilled everything and gave perfect freedom. God, may this just propel us further to engage this more. In Christ's name, amen.